Hello and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. I am your host, Justin Livernet, and today we're going to be talking about President Carter a little bit. He recently went into hospice at the age of 98, and he had a very short term. He was a one-term president. He's kind of an in-between president where you go from the Nixon and the fallout from the Nixon years, and then his his successor go through Carter, and then you switch and you bump into Reagan, who changes the dynamic of national politics for whichever your opinion is on the way that he did that. But for the next eight years, plus the four years after him of Bush Sr., and then Clinton is the Democrats attempt to get more of the Republican vote is pretty successful. So, but he sits there in the middle and he sits there in this, this very interesting way where there's this transition from kind of politics of the past to kind of a more hopeful future. I look at Jimmy Carter's presidency and it happens in such a tumultuous time around energy and oil shocks and just changes in the world government and interconnectedness that was happening at that point. I mean, you're looking at the oil embargo, the uh, hostages that were taken. There's just so much stuff happening that's still kind of flowing out of that era. And we're still kind of dealing with the fallout today. But the reason I wanted to talk about Carter today is to talk about government programs and what happens when they actually work. So we're going to talk about a, uh, the department of energy, which was created during the Carter administration uh, and the application standards program that's become into existence because of that and covers a bunch of categories of appliances. But before that, let's just do kind of a quick review of probably the most common government programs that people in this space are familiar with. There's U.S. programs, but there's also a huge number of international programs. So when you're talking about how the government is kind of has its hand in housing, most of the stuff is around building codes, funding for houses, tax breaks, zoning. That's the stuff that we're most used to, right? And this is internationally, we have that kind of space. Um, Singapore has stuff like the Housing and Development Board that manages public housing. It's been very successful. It has a comprehensive approach and it does rigorous planning, subsidies for low-income houses, and a variety of financing options. The UK has a right-to-buy program that started in the 1980s that allows long-term public housing tenants to purchase their homes at a discount. It increased home ownership and helped families build wealth through property ownership. It was a very successful program. In Canada, they approach housing differently than we do. And one of those is through the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. It provides mortgage loan insurance, rental assistance, and funding for affordable housing projects. The National Housing Strategy, which started in 2017, is a 10-year, $40 billion plan that aims to create new affordable housing units and renovate existing ones. Current opinion on that is it's really strong. Australia has the National Rental Affordability Scheme, introduced in 2008. I like that they call it a scheme. That feels very, very Australian. Um... Anyway, it's it's a program that offers tax incentives to developers and investors when they provide affordable rental housing to low and moderate income households. It aims to increase the supply of affordable rental properties and improve rental affordability. Brazil has one called Mina Casa Mina Vida, which means my house and my life. It launched in 2009. It aims to provide affordable housing for low income families through subsidies, low interest loans, and partnerships with private developers. So 
the recurring theme in all of those is very similar to the theme that you'll see in the U.S.'s approach to this. In the U.S., we have several programs around this, not least of which is probably the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration loans. So the FHA loans are government-backed mortgages, and they provide affordable homeownership opportunities to first-time home, home buyers and those with lower incomes or credit scores. The FHA insures these loans. So then by them insuring it, they're distributing this benefit amongst everybody, but it's government-backed, so the risk is held by everybody as well. And that's a really good public-private partnership kind of thing there. Um, they also have the VA loans which they offer mortgage loans with super favorable terms to people that have served in the armed forces. If you listen to generational wealth podcast that we did, you'll recognize that my grandfather bought his house with the VA loan, which he would not have been able to do without it. I bought my first house with an FHA loan. Otherwise I would not have been able to do it like that. They are so pivotal to first time home ownership. And then once you have that, and the wealth gets built inside of that first property, then when you buy another property, all of a sudden you have an open space where you can get closer to having 20% down or getting the 20% together because you have this piece of equity that's been built. So FHA and VA loans are incredibly effective at getting that wealth development begun. The, the weird loan that I, I actually encountered when I was working at American Homes Front is USDA Rural Development Housing Programs. So the Department of Agriculture actually offers programs for low-income home buyers, guaranteed loads for moderate-income households, and even some home repair stuff. But where this is interesting is when you're looking at rental properties in some parts of the country, if that rental property is right next to a USDA-approved place where there's development going on, sometimes the mortgage is the same or even cheaper than renting just because the USDA has so much money backing it that you can get into some of those homes for very little money. And when you look at a home that's renting for 2,500 bucks and they want first last month and deposit, you're talking about coming up with 7,500 bucks, right? For your, to move in. And if you can get 7,500 bucks together, you might be able to buy through the USDA programs, right? So it's, it's interesting there where they, there's that conflict. There's a bunch of stuff for low income, Section 8, public housing. There's a home investment partnerships program. And there's even community development block grants where they give grants to states, cities, and counties for urban communities for decent housing, improving the living environment, and then opportunities for economic growth. The thing that's common with all of these programs is they're trying to truncate the path to home ownership. And then at the lower end, when we're talking about Section 8 and stuff like that, they're trying to provide residency ability and affordability, where you can actually be in the home. You can have a place to live when you're right on the edge of being able to live. The others are all kind of middle classy. They're all there to help that kind of group. So... The reason that's important is because when we start talking about Carter and what he kind of did as a president, there's a couple of things that come out of this. And that's it, it, the difference between progressive and res regressive schemes of not just taxation, but benefit. And the reason I'm going to mention this is because when you're looking at a program that is just trying to make energy more efficient, the people that pay more as a percentage of their income in energy expenditure, and I'm talking fuel, energy for the home, gasoline, electricity, the people that pay a large percent of it 
are the poor. The poorer you are, the higher percentage of your income goes to those things. When you're paying more for transportation and you're paying more for heating, air conditioning, heck, your water even, all these things are a higher percentage of your income. So my argument here is that when we start looking at how Jimmy Carter's energy conservation focus has affected people's lives, I think it's one of the strongest arguments for long tail regulations from the government that are about pushing for efficiency. Because if we push for efficiency while at the same time pushing for ability, we get gains on both sides. And we'll get really deep into this and kind of run some numbers for it. But I want to talk about how Jimmy Carter kind of approached this because he, you know, in the 70s, the U.S. imported a lot of oil. Embargoes made it so that you had to go wait in line at a gas station, depending on what your, uh, it's either zip code or phone number or social security. I don't remember which one they used, but certain certain numbers got to get gas on certain days and you could only get so much gas. You couldn't fill up 12 trash cans in the back of your truck like some people tried right at the beginning of COVID when everybody freaked out about gas. So because we were so dependent on other countries, Carter looked at that and said, okay, well, what we have to do is look at this and figure out how to resolve it. And he said in an interview that later became known as the sweater speech, he was sitting by a fireplace wearing a cardigan sweater. And on TV, he said, all of us must learn to waste less energy simply by keeping our thermostats, for instance, at 65 degrees in the daytime and 55 degrees at night, we can save half the current shortage of natural gas. So he comes out and says this, this pragmatic approach to the thing, which should have spoken to the need, the necessity, and the moment. And some people, especially on the other side of the aisle, came on and made fun of him for this. They said, this is, this is we don't need to save, just, you know, burn it. And they just ripped on him. It was bizarre. And at the same time, he's trying to figure out how to make all this work better. And he put solar panels on the roof of the White House, the first president to ever do this. Those solar panels weren't photovoltaics, to my understanding. They were for heating water. So it was a way to get away from using natural gas. These are a, a, an interesting kind of solar panel. My dad made some and put them on our roof when I was a kid. But you basically run copper tubing through a metal box with a piece of glass on it. And inside that metal box, it turns into a little greenhouse. And that greenhouse effect heats the water and it makes you less reliant on natural gas. There was a class that they had at the local community college and this is back in the 80s where you go in and learn how to make them. My dad made, I think, either four or six of them. I think there were four. He had four and he put them on the roof and they helped heat the water to take the pressure off from the natural gas supply that would normally heat that, which is fantastic. Like That's such a great idea. Those solar panels were removed in the 80s by Ronald Reagan. After Reagan, we would put solar panels on the grounds of the White House under George W. Bush. He put a nine kilowatt system up and then he put one system in to heat the pool and spa water. And that the maintenance building had the nine kilowatt system. Um, Obama put the solar panels on the White House. Uh, I think it's a 19 kilowatt system, so it's a pretty decent sized one. Uh, so, you know, it's gone back and forth and those are there. They're still back 
up on the White House, but Jimmy Carter was the first one to put them there. In that space, where he was kind of figuring out how to be more efficient, uh, he put together the Department of Energy and setting the Appliance Standards Program. The Appliance Standards Program covers 65 categories of appliances that are 90% of home energy use, right? So washers, dryers, lighting, refrigeration, heating, cooling, cooking. If you remember when everybody was up in arms about switching to all LEDs and all efficient light bulbs, this was a result of still the Carter administration's appliance standards program. He was the first president to pass a law on energy efficiency standards that had teeth. This actually had penalties and tax breaks depending on if the creators of these devices, these refrigerators and light bulbs, toasters, just everything, could be punished. There was punitive measures there. So the, the impacts were extraordinary. Jeff Genzer, an attorney with Duncan Weinberg, Genzer, and Pembroke, who was a counsel to the National Association of State Energy Officials. Jeff Genzer says, the impacts were extraordinary. Even though he was in office for only four years, the advent of appliance standards produced in terms of lower energy costs for all consumers in the United States has to be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's over the last 40 years. So that's a lot of money that's going directly towards savings. Now, it's weird because the characterization of efficiency in Carter's time was seen as a sacrifice. It was seen as going, hey, we need to do this for the betterment of the country. But I would argue that in trying to be more efficient, the downstream effect has been a progressive savings where you're saving more money as a percentage of your income as you go down the economic ladder. If you're way up high on the economic ladder, you're getting benefits from this efficiency, but you don't care. It's such an incidental portion of your income and your funding. So let's talk about some of the numbers and let's talk about refrigerators in particular, because refrigerators are one of the most mind-blowingly successful things under this program. And here's how the numbers work out for this. So if you look at the average household refrigerator volume, back in the 70s, it was just under 20 cubic feet, right? So a 20 cubic feet refrigerator. Now, the average refrigerator size sits not too far from that. It's maybe a 10% increase, right? So it's around 22, 23. In 1972, so this is before these standards are in place, it would be using 2,000 kilowatt hours a year of energy. In 2014, they were using 500 kilowatt hours of energy. One quarter of the amount, <laughs> like the the craziness of that switch to be able to go, could you imagine if in that same amount of time, we quadrupled the efficiency of anything else? The, the one that comes close, I think, is miles per gallon is getting there in large part to the advent of electric and hybrid and the efficiencies, stop, start. All those things are getting gas in that same space, but th that efficiency, that savings, like, could you imagine if you had to spend four times as much on your electric bill just because you're a stupid refrigerator? That'd be nuts. That would not be super useful. The other side of this is that in 2014 dollars, the average price of a refrigerator has cut almost in half. The average refrigerator costs about $1,200 in 2014 dollars in 1972. And in 2012, the average refrigerator 
costs a little bit more than 500 bucks. And I, I, I know if any of you shop for refrigerators during the pandemic, they are more than that. Um, but they're also still not, on average, more than $1,200. The average price in 2014 dollars adjusted for inflation is still lower than it was in 1972 by quite a lot. Not the full half anymore, but a significant amount. And that's just one of the things that this has purview over. The washing machines that you use use less water. The dryers you use use less energy. The heating and cooling equipment you use is more efficient. I had a, an HVAC I had ever replaced, and they, they rate it in things called SEERS, S-E-E-Rs, right? So what that, it's actually an acronym, of course, because everything is acronyms in any kind of a government program. It's called the Seasonal Energy Efficiency Ratio. So SEER rating is the ratio developed when the cooling output of the system over an average cooling season is divided by the total energy used. More, it's just how much energy and money it requires to operate efficiently. And a higher SEER number is better, right? So the way they're doing this, though, is they just get clever with this stuff. They get clever and they jump in and they go, okay, well, what if we have uh, two-stage compressors? What if we have a high system and a low system where it, it works harder when it needs to and not all the time? It's not a one, it's not an on or off, it's a adjusting to what it needs to do. Okay, cool, let's do that. Oh, you know, when we stop and turn it off, it's still cool for a while. So what if we have the fan keep running for the 10 minutes after the system shuts off just to get that cold air into the house? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So they find new ways to create incidental efficiencies. And so SEER ratings tell you how good they are at that. And it used to be, you know, their 8 to 10 was the units from 20 years ago. And now most units are 13 to 21 and you can get them installed with heat pumps that are even more efficient these days, especially if you're on solar, then that's more efficient. So all this stuff stacks up. And I, I just think it's phenomenal that there was a program that was put together in the 70s whose tail end is still affecting us today, who is inspiring the new ways of looking at vehicle standards, the new ways of looking at housing standards. There's new ways of looking at how materials in a house affect its insulation, insulative properties. And there's some people who are building what are called zero houses, where it's so well insulated that the amount of energy to heat and cool it over the course of the year is less than it costs to run a toaster. So it's just these crazy efficient models. And as those become more and more mainstream, all those effects compound. And it makes it so that people have the ability to live in places that are difficult to live in. Think Phoenix, think Las Vegas, think Michigan, think anywhere that's super cold or super hot. The better we are at retaining the heat or cold in those environments, the easier it is for us to live there. The more efficiently we can do so, the more affordably we can do so, the more those benefits get spread across, across all classes. You don't have to be rich to be able to afford to live, which I think is fair. If you want to live somewhere, you should be able to live there. But suffice it to say, the read on today's piece and what I kind of wanted to get into was the IRA, the latest uh, Inflation Reduction Act, has a whole bunch of stuff that's in the same space. And it's put so much money on the table that I think it might be the next one that has this profound effect downstream. 
So as you're looking at your properties and as you're looking at what you can do to improve them, maybe you start going, you know what? Utilities are included. I will pay your electric bill, but you do that by putting solar on the roof. Maybe you say, hey, you know what? I will work with you to put heat pumps in if you work with me to keep the property maintained. There's gotta be these conversations between property owners and renters about getting these things in place so that these 15 million single family rental homes across the United States start to work not just for the owner, but for the resident as well. And not just for the owner and for the resident, but for the whole country. I mean, the money's out there. The incentive and funding is there. The long-term value is huge. So that's what I want to leave you with. Go ahead and go talk to your tax people because it's tax time. Uh, Keep Jimmy Carter in your thoughts and prayers because he is in hospice and he's done amazing things in his post-presidential career too, working with Habitat for Humanity as long as he have and being one of our first really evangelical presidents, which is crazy after the Kennedy worries around Catholicism. But he, he did a great job. Um, so keep that in mind. If you need any help with your property management needs, you can reach us at poplar.homes slash pod. That's poplar.homes slash pod. Thanks for tuning in. I hope I didn't bore you to death with my rambling, but I really think that this is an important and interesting topic and an important, interesting time to be a part of it. Go read the IRA. Thanks. Bye-bye.